after after losing 11 friends to suicide in one year alone, 2018, uh, I decided to uh, do as much research on this as possible. Um, drawing on stuff I was interested in as a kid as well. I was pretty nerdy as a kid and I studied neuroscience, neurology, psychology when I was uh, very young, around about the same time as I was publishing my games. And I, I drew on that, I drew on lots of my own research, other people's research, um, studies, analysis, etc. And I built a keynote speech about mental health in the tech industry that explains why our industry is so problematical and then explains all of the natural coping mechanisms you can put in place to stay on the right side of the tracks. Um, finally, it asks for systemic change in our industry, which you know, does begin with the VCs out there that might be listening to this. Um, we need to change the way we do things in terms of giving people money and then the way that we support and nurture those businesses and those people. Um, the old way of just throwing loads of money at somebody just because they got a good idea and they come from the right school and then pressuring them into 14, 15, 16 hour days, seven days a week to get you your return, that has to stop. And it's also not the best way to get your return. It's not the most effective way. If I'm being brutal and blunt about it, nothing will kill your investment faster than if the founder kills themselves. So let's change the entire paradigm. There are much better ways to look after portfolio companies in order to get your returns because I promise you, you're more likely to get a return from happy, healthy, balanced founders and staff than you will from people that are constantly under stress all the time and getting ill because of the amount of stress they're putting themselves under. I hear a lot of companies and VCs tout the line that they care about people, they care about their happiness, but they don't actually understand what that means and they don't execute on it. Whenever, if I mean, I've gone up to um, you know top uh, CEOs of multi-billion-dollar companies who front this line, and I ask them, "Well, does your KPI reflect this?" And they say, "No. They have no measurements to measure how happy or how safe." Um, their staff is, and maybe mental health and happiness should be a KPI, not just for companies, but for VCs as well. I absolutely agree with that. I think, I think that's, uh, that's needed. I also think we need to be smarter and more honest about what we're providing people within our companies um, in order to improve their mental health, uh, improve company culture, improve worker happiness. Um, I'm here to tell you right now, a ping pong table does not cut it. That is, that is as, like, <laughs> I was gonna say it's table stakes. Hey, hey puns. Um, <laughs> do we have a drum kit? <laughs> um, I wish I did. I was actually gonna get a gong for this. But, <laughs> but you know, sticking a ping pong table or, you know, a pool table or foosball or whatever in an office doesn't cut it. That is not going to solve somebody's anxiety issues. That's not going to solve it when you have somebody because you die and you don't notice because you've not identified this in your business. You have somebody that is so damn anxious about the day they're about to have in startup land because they know it's going to be insane and brutal that they are literally crying in their shower 
and crying all the way to work and then they'll wash up their face and they'll go in and they'll get into it. And you don't know this because you are not looking. You are not seeing. You are not listening. You are not hearing. You are, like, <laughs> you're oblivious to it. You are oblivious to it. And this is happening every day. Thousands of people. Anxiety, depression, all sorts of mental health issues. And it, people aren't noticing. They're not noticing because they're not measuring. Yeah. They're not listening. They're not asking questions. Um, and these are the same companies that I hear all the time talk about how much they care about their people. They want to treat them well. I, I find that it's hard to find, it's really hard to find companies in tech um, who actually care, who actually, you know, walk the talk. Because things have gone from bad to worse. It used to be just be bad, but now it's toxic. Yeah. Toxic is not it's not sustainable at all. You can you might be able to tolerate bad, but toxic? No way. That gets to you. Like, how valuable is your amazing, hilarious anecdote of that time when you worked at Google, but they weren't paying you enough, and you couldn't afford a San Francisco rent, so you lived in a camper van on in the car park and went into work every day. Like how valuable is that anecdote going to be uh, you know, in comparison to the loss of your mental faculties because of that experience? Mm -hmm. like, there are people out there who literally are almost boasting that this is what they had to do to get by in startup land because they think hustle and grind is the thing. Um, you don't impress me with those stories, people. You do not impress me. All that that tells me is that the company you're working for doesn't care about you and doesn't understand how to support you uh, in your mental health struggles. And you don't care about yourself enough to go and work for someone else. Um, and yeah, sure, I know it's nice to have Google on your resume. It does open up doors. But for goodness sake, people, take care of yourselves first and foremost, above and beyond the kudos that you're going to get from a resume and the anecdote you're going to be able to tell people down the bar. Um, it isn't worth it. And in fact, it could cost you your life. So be smart. Yeah, no, I agree. So earlier you mentioned that you, so you got into sales, then you were leading the software tech company, became an IT manager. How did you get into, how did you transition to media? Yeah. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like a natural <laughs> career progression, right? You've done quite a lot, and I want to want to unpack it. So after the after the IT role, and then getting back into sales, I, I did a few years of really really tough, like proper hard selling stuff, um, and that's where I learned about the craft of sales. I I did all sorts of things. I actually, uh, you know, because I love data and analysis, I analyzed over ten thousand sales um, cycles to figure out that they're you know, it's probe, prove, and close. It's, you know, ask questions, then prove you can do it, then close the deal. Because uh, I, I had to say that because I realized I didn't give people the other two parts of the uh, sales cycle earlier. Um, and then I went back into running my next software house. And then I ran another one. And then I ran another one. Eventually, we stopped calling them software houses. We started calling them startups. So I ran one of those too. Um, they're pretty much the same thing. So... 
I was doing that, but I never left, uh, you know, touch, you know, never lost touch with the video game industry. Um, and I wanted to figure out a way to raise money for charities because, you know, I was in a good position. I wanted to be able to figure out how to give back. So everyone had started blogging and people were blogging for money and they were making good money out of just like doing good blogs and, you know, putting advertising on their site, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I started a PlayStation news website and when I announced that all of the revenue from this website was being given to charity, so many people just came out of the woodwork and said, this is amazing, I would like to volunteer. And they would volunteer their time and write articles. Incredible group of people. So not only did we generate tens of thousands of dollars for charities, really good, amazing charities, uh, including one of my favorites, Special Effect. Big shout out to Special Effect. Um, they created devices including like iris tracking systems and other uh, game controllers uh, that allow uh, children with uh, you know full body paralysis or you know paraplegic kids or whatever not just to play games just by moving their eye um, but also you know control keyboards and everything so they can actually message their friends on social networks um, and that's a game changer for wow. you know when you can't move any of your limbs right um, so. It was generating tens of thousands of dollars a year for charity. On top of that, we had over 50 young journalists come through the program, learn how to be a good journalist, and go on and get paid video game journalism jobs. So for me, it was one of the most rewarding projects I've ever done. And that went on for like 12 years. Okay. Um, a 12-year-long project before you know I, I decided to can it. Um, and I had to can it in the end because one, it was just taking up a lot of time. But two, Google had changed their algorithms. Um, if you're an SEO, you'll remember uh, Panda and Penguin. And they were now penalizing similar content on different sites. So if Eurogamer, which is a huge website, broke the news and then we broke the news at the same time or even a few minutes later, you would see the Eurogamer version. You wouldn't see our version um, because we're reporting the same press release, right? We've, we've both had the same press release. We've both written up a story based on the same press release. has the same quotes, right? It has the same quotes. It has similar content. Maybe, you know, both journalists have copied and pasted a little bit, right? Um, Google is favoring the bigger site the one with the, the highest authority. Mm -hmm. So we lost a ton of traffic. We went from hundreds of thousands of visits a month uh, to very few, very, very few. And nothing had changed on the site. We were still producing really good, high-quality journalism multiple times a day, but we couldn't get the traffic anymore because Google killed it. Um, and then on top of that, you know, people started doing the crazy ad blocker thing and... You know, I, I have a very strong opinion of ad blockers. I think, I, I think it's kind of interesting that the same people that campaigned for net neutrality so that we don't have two speed lanes on the internet um, use ad blockers. 
uh, and I'll tell you why those two things are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, if you use an ad blocker, you are penalizing a young publisher. How do you think we pay for journalists? Do you think we, we just have bottomless pockets of cash? No, we, we pay them from the advertising and sponsorship revenue we generate. Mm-hmm. If you're using an ad blocker, you're stopping a publication getting its ad money. And therefore, you are stopping only the young and small publications that could be amazing and great and incredible in the future. The only people who win here are the big publications who can afford to pay the ad blocker companies to be on the whitelist, uh, which, by the way, is a, that's a, a mafia scheme if I ever heard one, right? Mm-hmm pay to be on the white list. It's like paying protection money, what the hell? Um, and so therefore you're, you're creating that two-speed lane. You know, you're stopping young, uh, innovative publishers from ever becoming big. Um, you know, ad blocking should not be done at the ad blocker level. If we want to have better advertising in this world, if we want to uh, stop malware, we don't do that at an ad level. We do that by getting Google and Microsoft and everybody else's creative browsers to solve malware at the browser level or the, or, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Google to solve it at an OS level mm-hmm. or install a malware blocker. That's a sensible thing to do. But yeah. installing ad blockers is just hurting uh, young publishers and new publishers. So, you know, I'm dead set against that. Haven't a lot of media platforms circumvented this in some ways by... Well, when I go on, for example, I think The Guardian, Wall Street Journal, when I go on their websites, it doesn't allow me to view any content mm-hmm. if I don't disable my ad blocker. Yeah, and a lot of publishers have wrestled with that. You've got lots of different models now. You've got the paywall model. Uh, we've implemented a paywall at Grit Daily. Some of our content is only available to subscribers. Um, you know, if you take other views, you've got the, you know, the sort of almost the, 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 the pressure way of doing it, the emotional pressure way of doing it, which is to pop a little box and say, hey, we need to pay our journalists. Uh, please turn off your ad blocker. Yeah. Um, you know, you have all sorts of different models. And I still don't think anyone's really got it 100% right. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that we can fix advertising by increasing the quality of advertising, which of course all the advertising bodies around the world try to do you know, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, or we can just pay for it. Or we can just pay for it, yeah. I mean... Which the New York Times, I think, does pretty well. Bless you. Thank you. Um, the New York Times, yeah. And you know, if you look at the New York Times results, like famously they... They had millions of uh, readers, and then they put the paywall in, and they had a huge drop-off in terms of traffic. But of course, you know, the people that did decide to spend the money did generate a lot of revenue for them. Mm-hmm. It's it's a difficult thing as a journalist to work for a publication that reduces its viewership by ninety percent by sticking a paywall in. Yeah. Because as a journalist, you want people to read what you've written. You've put your heart and soul into that piece. You've put, you know, investigation and fact checking and 
you know your understanding your knowledge and, and balance and you know you put a lot of effort into that piece you want as many people to read it as possible so it's it's hard for a journalist to be working for a site that has a paywall um, but at the same time you kind of need it because you want to make sure they get, they're going to pay you every month mm-hmm. they need to have enough money um, you know we put a paywall in at Grit Daily but not for all content just for uh, premium content and we think that's a sensible way to do it because you're still reaching a, a big audience uh, f- with most of your articles and then for a mere few of them um, at least the publication is making money from that which then secures your future with the publication as well so we think we got that nice balance there um, we're not putting a paywall in uh, badass times right now mm-hmm. um, we're currently looking at other ways to monetize the site we currently have the you know the traditional stuff which is advertising and sponsored posts and you know other promotion partnerships with people including media partnerships mm-hmm. um, but we'll be introducing some new monetization uh, solutions soon that are designed to not have a negative impact on our readers because those are the people we care about the most earlier you mentioned that you're driven by purpose what is your purpose my purpose in life is to leave the world a better place when I left it and create projects that uh, you know, fit that purpose. Um, preferably I'll create something that will last for many generations. Um, as, you know, second time she's getting a mention on a podcast, but as uh, my friend Guy Dempsey told me one time, the, uh, I believe it was the Iroquois Native Americans believe that if you could create something that will positively affect somebody for seven generations, you know, positively affect the people of seven generations, uh, at that point it will last forever and it, it will have a, you know, infinite impact. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to create something that will last seven generations, but that would be the ultimate goal. Um, have to say, doing this with no ego attached, I, I'm not interested in people remembering me or knowing me it's not about my place in history don't want the Stuart Rogers wing of the hospital none of that I just want to make an impact so these days you know my last startup um, VentureBeat covered that and that's how I got talking to VentureBeat and that's how I joined VentureBeat and then you know as a staff writer there and I I helped run the analyst arm uh, the research arm which was VB Insight um, you know, and I've gone on from there. Um, I'm emceeing for them still, but uh, I've gone on from there to move the editorial to Grit Daily and Badass Times, and I also contribute to Hacker Noon. Um, but you know, that's my journalist side. On top of that, we have Badass Empire, which is designed to educate digital professionals, and and Badass Times, as a you know product of that, is helping to educate and inform and help uh, to socialize digital nomads. But I'm also a member of Planet Positive uh, Consortium. It's uh, I'm a partner there. Um, it is a consortium of uh, you know VCs, LPs, and interested parties. And every week we look at incredible sustainability solutions that are globally scalable. Um, and if we agree that these solutions are real, and you know we do all our due diligence, so on and so forth. We will help them get the funding they need to scale globally so that we can, you know, just we want to fix the damage that we've done to this planet um, and, you know, reverse uh, reverse all of that because we are in a dire situation when it comes to 
of you know we we only have a few years to fix these problems before it's going to have an incredibly negative impact on the human race um, and it's already had an incredibly negative impact on animal life and plant life so we need to fix it and, and Planet Positive is, is doing uh, things around that I'm also an ambassador for Green Tech Alliance which is another sustainability alliance and then I have a bunch of other projects a bunch of other startups um, most of which are designed to uh, you know, help people in some way, shape, or form. Um, and while I can't reveal what they all are just now, uh, they all are designed to fit my purpose, and that's, that's the most important thing to me. How do you do all of these things? <laughs> How do you have time for it? You know, time, time is the most important thing that... Uh, and it's, it's the most valuable commodity in the world. Um, every minute you and I sit here and do this podcast, we don't get those minutes back. Mm-hmm. So I like to make very good use of my time. This is a very good use of my time. <laughs> um, it also means that you know I like to give my time to my friends. I think it's a very incredible gift to give your time to your friends. And of course I give it to them for free and, and with love. Um, if I'm giving my time to somebody else, then they need to compensate me for that time. Um, whether that's a money compensation, paying for my time, or whether it's some sort of quid pro quo, uh, you know, or barter situation. Um, now, I make best use of my time through a number of techniques I've developed that help me to work faster, but with more clarity and inspiration than I ever used to. Um, it includes daily meditation. Meditation is incredibly important. Um, it is not just for tree huggers, I promise you. Meditation has saved my life and continues to change my life in incredible ways, uh, including increased immunity, by the way, everybody. So if you want to really make sure you're protecting yourself against uh, whatever is the virus of the year, uh, I think we all know which one it is this year. Um, you know, your immune system is really important and what meditation does for you is, is it reduces your stress, reduces your overproduction of adrenaline and cortisol that you might be used to if you're in a startup world. Um, overproduction of cortisol uh, erodes your immune system, so if you stay stress-free, uh, you are not opening up your body for inflammation and disease uh, as much as if you were stressed all the time. Um, so meditation is important. Understanding the difference between what is important and what is urgent is important. Uh, you should be focusing on the things that are important, not urgent. Urgent is notification on your smartphone, or you know, urgent is uh, a phone call. Um, you have to ask yourself: Are these things that are on my list to get done important or urgent? Do the important stuff. The urgent stuff can wait. Uh, you know, if it's not adding to your bottom line, if it's not helping you get that product finished, if it's not uh, helping you to raise that money for charity, if it's not uh, helping you to make sure that your staff have good mental strength, you know, if it's not any of those, it's not important, like, you know, if it's not seeing your family, so on and so forth. Search yourself, figure out what is important to you and your business and your family and your friends. And if it is on that important list, do that. Don't do the urgent stuff. Urgent stuff is, is trickery. Uh, it screams really loudly at you and you think, oh, yeah, I must do the urgent thing. 
no, stop it. Do the important thing. And also, we have to change the way we work. Like, the way that we work right now is antiquated, hasn't kept up with the times, and it's bad for our physical and mental health. So, even though I'm pretty busy, I work for a bit, then I play. Then I work for a bit, then I play. And so on and so forth. And then I end the day by just playing and having fun and being a child and, you know, having that childlike mind and just enjoying incredible experiences with people I adore. Like, if you work that way, what actually happens from a, a chemical standpoint is when you play, when you have fun, when you do something exciting, your body goes into the same sort of fight or flight mode that it gets into when you're scared. And when you go into fight or flight mode, you create a, a protein uh, called uh, brain-derived nootropic factor. Um, and BDNF actually acts as a, like a reset button for your brain and, and helps you think clearer. Um, in a fight or flight mode, that protein is designed to help you think clearer because you need to be able to think, do I run or do I fight? Um, and it happens when you play just as much as when you're scared. So going away and having a fun session before you do the next task actually will make your work better, clearer, fewer mistakes. Um, and because you've played, maybe you've been out in nature, maybe you've swung on a swing or maybe you painted something for 10 minutes or whatever, but because you played, your work's also going to be more inspired and creative. And so I work around three to four times faster than I used to because of meditation and these different work processes that I will eventually put the entire thing down. I've given you literally not even a, you know, a, a scratch of the surface. I think we, we probably haven't even touched the surface yet. We're hovering slightly above the surface in a slightly awkward way. And I will turn all this into a book at some point because <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, it's this is this has got to be done. Like we we have to get away from this. You know, if if you're working in a regular job, you're doing like nine to five in an office, uh, five days a week. Um, if you're working in startup land, we know it's much more uh, tortuous than that. Um, same for things like construction and uh, you know healthcare and you know all these things where people are working just ridiculous hours and under a lot of pressure and all that kind of stuff and i believe that we can work in a totally different way that not only supports our physical and mental health but actually would generate more uh income tax for countries around the world um and yeah we have to look at cultural differences of course but you know, you think it's hard in your nine to five job, you know, nine to six job or whatever you're doing. Uh, go work in China. You know, they uh, basically it's six nine six, which is six o'clock in the morning. You're supposed to be working nine o'clock at night. You stop and you do that six days a week. You know, that's the that's the cultural norm in China. Um, does it get things done? Yes. Um, is it killing lots of people? Also, yes. Mm. You know, we we just have to do things different ways and uh, I believe I've come up with something that will help to make that happen. But that's how I do all these things. I I just have really amazing processes and uh, those processes help me to get things done a lot faster uh, and that's how I manage to, to juggle them. I also only have a single task, by the way. I only do one thing at once. 
um, because multitasking is actually damaging to your brain. We're not designed I for agree. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stuart, I can't wait to read about all of that. I hope you write about it in the book. Um, I have to say I'm really thankful for you doing this because we're lying here in Berlin side by side on a bed in your room. It's, I think, at least 30 degrees. I'm sweating bullets. <laughs> We've been able to get through almost 60 minutes of this. Um, and you've not complained about the heat once. Um, so <laughs> the kudos, to, kudos <laughs> to you for that. What a professional. And folks, there you have it. You got inside the mines and in bed with Stuart Rogers. We got to unpack and dissect his career trajectory. Um, it's very incredible um, how you started off as a child prodigy programmer at the age of seven, went into sales, marketing, media, publishing. You're, I, I don't even know where to fit you, whether I call you a programmer, a tech person, a journalist. I think you're everything. Um, and also an incredible friend. I, I do want to mention that. We got to learn about your philosophy of law of attraction exuding positivity, your secrets, quote unquote, secrets or tips on how to do better sales um, and getting to know your customers better, how to price, um, how to ask for what you want and taking care of your mental health and well-being. The last question I have for you, which I ask everyone on this podcast is how can people connect with you? Oh, absolutely. And please do. Um... You'll find me on most social media at the real SJR, so T H E R E A L S J R. Um, you'll find my portfolio site at stuartrogers.me. Um, Stuart is spelled S T E W A R T, and Rogers is R O G E R S, so stuartrogers.me. And you'll also find me all over badassempire.com, badasstimes.com, gritdaily.com, uh, and uh, hackernoon.com. Um, yeah, please come connect. Uh, you'll, you'll find me everywhere. If, if you can't remember any of those things, just type my name into Google. Uh, all of the first results, you'll get my Instagram, my Twitter, my, uh, you know, LinkedIn, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's all there. So please, yeah, come connect. Um, when you connect, um, you know, and this is a tip for meeting journalists, uh, treat me like a human being. Don't just like dive in and say, Hey, I've got a startup. Can you write about me? Um, connect with me and say hi and you know ask me a decent question and uh, I'd love to hear from people that are, have listened to this um, and I'd love to say a huge thank you to you Coral because uh, yeah you're a great friend and uh, this has been an awesome awesome experience um, really have loved it and thank you so much I'm so glad to have you here thank you so much Stuart thanks everyone <laughs> bye until next time